0: Hi guys, and thank you for listening to the Campus Safety Voices podcast. My name is Amy Rock, and I am Senior Editor for Campus Safety. Each year, Campus Safety has a Director of the Year Awards program that recognizes K-12, higher ed, and hospital police chiefs, security directors, emergency managers, or heads of security and or public safety who demonstrate outstanding leadership skills, ingenuity, and selflessness. We name a winner from each sector at one of our campus safety conferences. The nomination materials we receive for each finalist are chock full of notable accomplishments. To give the finalists more deserved recognition, we like to chat with them further to highlight a few of their most impressive accomplishments or achievements they are especially proud of. One of the finalists is Garrett Humphrey, who is Director of Campus Safety for the UMS Wright Prep School in Alabama. I spoke with Garrett about how each faculty member is fully certified in American Red Cross's CPR, AED, and first aid, and also Stop the Bleed training. We also spoke about how a student trained in CPR and first aid saved the life of another student experiencing cardiac arrest, and also how he was able to partner with a local physician to establish drive-through testing during the pandemic. Take a listen. Be sure to subscribe to campus safety's youtube channel and like or leave a comment on our videos or subscribe to our campus safety voices podcast on apple and spotify and leave a review now you are director of campus safety and security for the ums Wright prep preparatory school, excuse me, in Mobile, and in your director of the year nomination, there are a lot of impressive accomplishments, but one that did stand out uh, is that each faculty member at your school is fully certified in American Red Cross's CPR, AED first aid, and also Stop the Bleed training. Uh, Can you just talk a little bit about that, how that was organized and how you got everyone on board or any pushback you may have had and how you got through that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we tend to take more of a data-driven methodical approach when it comes to school safety, and we take the information that's available to us. So we looked into an FBI study that was compiled over several years, and we look at, you know, all the causes of fatalities on campuses, but the number one that stood out was medical emergencies. And um, I I believe many schools are probably like this, but But typically, you only get your coaches certified in those types of courses because it's relative to what they do in their sport. So we thought that it's very imperative that we should look into getting our faculty certified for those things. Because on any given night, we can have anywhere from 2,000 to 5,000 fans, spectators, grandparents, alumni, et cetera, on our campus for an event. And having the ability to have 160 to 170 of our faculty members fully trained in CPR, first aid, and AED would be extremely beneficial. Um, As well as, you know, just given the the regular school day, we have around 1240 uh, enrollment for our K-12 schools. So we saw the need not only for ourselves as faculty members, but we might have to use it on a student one day.
0: Yeah, I feel like there is so much focus on uh, active assailant and physical threats that a lot of schools can sometimes forget that medical emergencies are far, far, far more common than, than other situations like that. And did you have any, was it a requirement for your employees or kind of an an optional thing?
1: No, once we decided that we were going to do it, we made a requirement for all faculty members. Now, it took us, um, you know, close to a year to get everyone certified because 160 faculty members and the scheduling and timing and all that stuff. Um, But now that it's gone through, it's something that we plan to renew every two years going forward. Um, I, because we have so many to certify, I went out and became an American Red Cross instructor. So I'm, I'm the instructor for the school. We don't have to hire out for that. And that was a benefit to the school too, as well as cost savings, you know, that it was a two-day course that I had to go through. It was, it was good training, um, but now we can bring that back to our school, modify it to fit within our time schedules. And when it's more beneficial for teachers, you know, after hours or on teacher work days, we can schedule those things in so that everyone uh, is on board with it. And we've had teachers, you know, they, they praise it. They, they love having having the confidence, not knowing that or not only knowing that they can make a difference here at the school, but, you know, out in our community as well.
0: Yeah, I imagine most people that work in schools aren't aren't hesitant to do things like that because you get into you get into the, the job wanting to help kids. And, and I think it's also great that you're able to take on that initiative because it just shows your dedication to it, too. And I feel like, you know, they're in their head. They're not saying, oh, he's outsourcing to mm-hmm. someone else. So it's good that you have the I'm sure you're very busy doing it, but that you have the capability to do that.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: That's awesome. And now your nomination also said that around 120 students have been certified in that one student even used those skills to save another student's life. Can you tell us about that incident?
1: Yeah, yeah. So we have a course that we did a couple years ago called Adulting 101. And it was about, a I want to say it was about a one week course, but we broke it down for our high schoolers. And they had an opportunity to go through different things. I mean, there's things unrelated to school safety, like their cooking, laundry, this kind of stuff. Um, but one of the things we taught was self-defense. And then we also taught um, American Red Cross first aid, CPR, and AED usage. And, th- and that covers the gambit. that's not just adults, but that's adult children and pediatric care. So we cover everything, whether we've got the mom on campus with her infant child doing a tour of the school or whether we have a grandparent here as an alumna. Um, so we sent our our kids through that and we broke them down in about 30 per group. Um, they went through it. I I felt like, you know, participation was great. They were into it. You know, it kind of became a competition amongst some of them, how fast they could do chest compressions, which I had to kind of rein that in a little bit. Um, but walked away with gaining that experience. You know, some of our, our students are babysitters. Some of ours are during the summer or lifeguards, So it was already beneficial for them. Um, and so over the course of the summer, we had, um, A rising junior and that rising junior's girlfriend and um, and unbeknownst to her, she had a heart condition at that time. And um, one evening as they were returning home, she went into cardiac arrest while in a vehicle as as he was taking her back to the house. And so training kicked in, you know, those scenarios that we put him through the stress and those kind of things he was able to revert back to his most basic fundamental training extracted her from the vehicle got her on a firm flat surface started administering chest compressions notified nine one one, and was able to revive her and and bring her back so i just think that was an incredible you know incredible achievement on him and and way to show poise under a stressful moment
0: yeah that's that's why in my head i was thinking that incident was going to be a choking thing which is still impressive to save someone from choking but that's amazing that he was able to save her from a heart attack. I can't even imagine. So um, and I also thought it was neat that you said that you included students from the theater department for the Stop the Bleed scenario training. Uh, How did that come about and how did that work out?
1: So I am still attached to a a local police department and we do training out there with them. Um, One of the courses that we train our officers in is Stop the Bleed. And it's typically taught to your hospital staff, to your first responders like law enforcement and to EMS. I saw the need in it because it's one of those after action responses I think everybody should have on my conscience cannot deal with the fact that I could have a student, a parent, a loved one hemorrhaging uncontrollably and us not do anything to care for that individual because some of your, your readers and listeners may know this already but but a lot don't when when a scene is considered a crime scene, whether it's a school or a business. EMS will stage its national policy a mile, two miles down the road while law enforcement comes onto the campus or to the location. And law enforcement must deem that location clear before EMS is gonna come in there. Well, we're a 55 acre campus, I can't sit there and wait 20 or 30 minutes while I've got a student bleeding and do nothing so we saw that the need to bring that training to our faculty as well and give our teachers, you know the confidence and the empowerment. And we thought it was very important that we put them through stressful scenarios as well. So it took a lot of planning but we reached out to our theater guild to our drama students and we wanted to make this as realistic as possible. We thought that it would be beneficial that it be students that be our role players. So our teachers are forced to go through that seeing an injured student that they know that they may have helped watch grow up at this school and still be able to prioritize care um, and so our injured students loved it they got service hours for coming out and doing it for us um, but teachers had to go through it we brought in hospital staff from a level one trauma hospital nearby um, who came and kind of helped us put on the initial portion of it you know tourniquet application direct pressure using your your quick clot and your Calex and those types of, of um, blood clotting impregnated devices, if you will, but sponges, those kind of things. Um, And kind of really help explain that and break it down and make it practical. And then we we let everybody know we broke them up into groups and we separated them into two hallways so that we had one down below and one up above. And so as these teachers are going through the scenarios, they're being observed by either hospital staff or myself. I'm also an instructor in Stop the Bleed. Um, So that they're getting assistance when they start to Panic a little bit, if you will, because what we do is we hold them behind a certain set of doors and we bring out the next two. And from the moment the door is open, the scenario begins. And it's realistic as possible. You may hear gunshots in the background. You hear students screaming. You're going to see blood on the ground. You're going to see a student that may be unresponsive. And we wanted our teachers to go through that because we think it better prepares them. If we have an emergency, they're going to fall back on that training and they're going to say, I know what it looks like when a student's bleeding or injured. I know what it, you know, what I need to do and how I need to prioritize care. What is most crucial that I treat first versus what's just a wound. And we can, we can treat that later on kind of thing versus, you know, we're not going to be able to do anything for this when we need to prioritize for those who are still alive.
0: And to your point about EMS having to clear a scene, it made me think of, you know, that happened at Columbine, right? Where they, I don't remember how long it was, but it was a long time before a lot of people went in to try and help kids that had been injured. And it's, I think there's a lot of talks now about how schools are more dangerous, but now so many more students know how to handle situations like that. So I think in a lot of ways, um, schools are a lot safer than they, in the last, you know, 20, 30 years.
1: I would say it also, it increased trust from our students to our teachers as well, because those role players, they went back and they told their other classmates, like, you know, so-and-so was amazing, you know, so-and-so, you know, was talking to me, you know, reassured me everything was going to be okay. And so it just kind of instilled further a level of trust between our students and our faculty members that our faculty members really buy into this because they care about the students.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the important thing too, you were saying, making it realistic is sometimes schools get pushback back for it, but the importance... The important thing is that students know that it's being made realistic. It's not like, a, here's this scenario, we're going to just throw stuff at you and not prepare you at all. The important part is preparing for them for it so they know what to expect and it's not totally traumatizing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it was only those select few students. Our, our theater students were the only ones involved. We scheduled this on a day when school was not open so that we, we would not have any eruptions or any confusion. Somebody walking in and thinking a student's really hurt, those types of things.
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely. And next, I wanted to talk about your COVID-19 protocol and procedures for the last couple of years and what went into your faculty training. And Can you talk about your partnerships with the local physician to establish a drive through testing? That was really unique.
1: Yeah, yeah. We were very proud of that, Um, you know, from the time that we were forced to shut down which I think was March of 2020, um, you know, we, we started going into this and spent most of the summer in planning and preparation from it. I'd say that we, we took a good amount of information from other schools' plans and kind of looked at them and said, you know, what do we think is going to work? Again, what does the data show us? What do we need to be prepared for? What do we need to focus on? And what just looks good on paper? Because there's some things out there like plexiglass, for instance. Air particles don't care about plexiglass. They're going to go right around them, right under them, just like water would. So, you know, there's some things like that. Um, but, but what it came to is we thought that it was necessary for our faculty to go through training. So we, we comprised our medical advisory committee to give us great information to help us form this training. Um, and from that, we provided, you know, a, a large group, I mean, about 160 to 170 staff members. That's our janitorial crew, as well as our faculty um, on, on several things, you know, what our protocols were going to be what are recognizing the signs and symptoms should be like and yet it's both within themselves as well as you know recognizing it amongst students and then what those reporting procedures should be you know identifying those isolation locations so that we could quickly get a student to the side so they're not further infecting anyone else um, and then we had great partnership um, with local physicians and that's really what what we leaned on was Our partnership you know a lot of these parents a lot of these physicians that we used are parents at our schools as well so we we looked to our parents and said hey how can we work with you to better prioritize care for our students and our faculty members so that we can keep our doors open and not have to force closure at any time and uh, and we had a local physician and his practice and partners that that stepped up to the plate and really helped us out tremendously Um, dedicated a nurse to a specific hotline that we established with them so if we had a student that began to display symptoms Maybe it was fever and cough, you know, joint, you know, symptoms that, that we recognized according to the COVID nineteen checklist. Um, we would immediately get in touch with that hotline and say, you know, this is the student's name and information. We'd like to send them to you to get testing. And so, um, this this partnership with this local physician again, they were able to establish a drive through where they prioritize UMS Wright families um, and um, and and faculty members. So, if we had one of those situations, it was. You know, information was taken over the phone. This is, you know, we're ready for you right now. Go ahead and head over. And fortunately, it's only about two miles down the road from us. So we would send that faculty member or that student to that location and they'd immediately get tested, you know, and and they'd meet with a physician and they would kind of determine what's the best test for you right now. Do we need an antigen or do we need an antigen and a PCR test? And if it's a PCR test, here's your paperwork where you're not going to return for the next three days until we get those results back. And so we were very fortunate in that. Another thing that I was very proud of is the fact that we established a COVID-19 dashboard for our school. You know, here in Alabama, it took maybe a year before our Department of Human Resources put one out for for the media and for the public to see, and we were on it from the first day we started. And so every day at two o'clock, we're publishing up-to-date, both historical and up-to-date information. So as a parent... At two o'clock, when you're sitting in the carpool line, you can look and see in my child's grade how many children were quarantined and then how many were in isolation and were positive, as well as those grades for the teachers. You could see staff members, whether it's our janitorial crew, our cafeteria crew, our maintenance and, and, and so on um, as security. And then also you could see teachers, you know, teachers in grade four. We've got a teacher in grade four that's out due to isolation. And so it kind of helped parents form I guess the best decisions, what was best for their kids and their school safety. And we offered pathways, you know, we called them um, like learning pathways. If if you wanted to remain home and do things virtual, then that was an option if you thought that was best. And then we had what we called pathway two, which was just a temporary um, learning situation where you would go remote from home. So if those parents saw maybe a few, like three or so cases in a particular class, they could say, you know what, I think I want to hold my daughter out for two weeks and just kind of let this little spike pass. And then move from there and transition back to class. And so parents were great. I mean, we had fantastic buy in from our parents. And it's because of them, along with what we did here in our mitigation strategies, that we never had to force a, you know, force closure of a grade level or a, a, you know, division or anything at any point. We're very proud of that.
0: And that dashboard, I feel like it's helpful too for parents can look at that and make decisions for. Their daily life outside of school, too. So it's like you can see if, if cases are high in school, you can decide to not go see your grandparents for a couple of weeks till mm-hmm. things go down. So it's helpful for school safety, but I feel like it's also helpful for people to gauge their outside life as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's that's very true. I mean, a lot of what we were seeing in the school is reflective of what we were seeing in the community as well. But I, like you're saying, I think it gave a good sense of when we start to see cases decline, it was consistent with what we were seeing here on campus. Um, And it it gave us a lot of data, you know, I mean, from, from year one to year two, we were able to capture all that stuff and see that some things that we did in the first year may not be necessary in the second year because it didn't result in locating positive individuals. Um, And then conversely, you know, there were some things that we implemented in the second year that we thought we we probably should have added in the first year. And it was just as beneficial.
0: Yeah. And like you said, you, you make that decision based on available data and that changes and it'll continue to change and you adjust as needed. So. Mm-hmm. And you had also written in your nomination that um, a COVID 19 hotline was established so parents could call and schedule. What were we were hearing from parents about how that capability and how did you get family buy in for that?
1: It, it didn't take a whole lot of selling. The ability that they didn't have to schedule something with their pediatric doctor and they could get immediate appointments was fantastic. Now, some parents, you know, they wanted to use their pediatrician and we encouraged them to use whichever healthcare provider they choose. Um, But they were more than receptive and extremely appreciative And, and we just got overall responses of just how smooth the transition was from identifying a student that was symptomatic sending them to get tested locating the fact that they were positive following our health and guidelines, timeframes for return, and then transitioning into pathway to learning and then returning to school, they they said it was just a seamless transition from one thing to the other. And again, that's, that's from our teachers locating it from, you know, our physicians helping us out with their partnership. And then, you know, some things that I did to try to help the transition as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a parent. I have my son is three and my daughter is one. And for daycare, if they had any any symptoms, they had to get tested. And it would have been great to have something set up through their school. So mm-hmm. that's that's very helpful. I know um, our my kids' pediatrician does it, but I'm depending on how cases were. They wouldn't take kids uh, that weren't symptomatic. Right. So. Which which I understand, um, but if you need if you were exposed, we needed to get te- a test for them to go back to daycare. And having you know a physician associated with their school would have been really helpful.
1: Not only that, but not having them go sit in a weight room with other potentially sick people waiting for their appointment—you know—that drive-through was just it was so knowing what time they had to be there, they'd show up on time, they'd get prioritization, they'd move to the front of the line essentially, uh, get swabbed and then they're, they're, they can go park in the parking lot, wait 20, 25 minutes if it was an antigen like a rapid um, or you know a nurse will call you back as soon as the results come back in. And a lot of times we could reach out to that physician and say, hey, have you seen the results come back in yet? And he'd be able to pull that results before the nurse would even have a chance to call. So we were getting information back quickly, we we're getting students back quickly and safely. And again, you know, keeping our doors open and students in the classrooms.